spend a lot of time talking to teenagers on social media. I'm watching young people who are drifting back into an older style of social media. They're focused on this myth-making, creating fandoms. They're not interested in monetization. I wonder, I wonder if you feel like there's a trend line that's going to be interrupted soon. Well, I mean, I guess like, I know we like kind of encounter different worlds on the internet and you're much more in like maybe a darker world. <laughs> um, but it, you know, it's interesting the way you're talking about monetization. Cause I do think, especially with like millennial internet, there's this like explicit like monetization and very like girl boss kind of stuff where totally. like, it's very like capitalistic, but a lot of young people I speak to at least have a, also just an understanding of the value of online influence and like clout, I guess, and not necessarily me- needing to like directly monetize it right away, like juice the, you know, whatever money you're going to get out of it. But it's also, I think when you're 18 or younger too, like you don't, have those financial pressures always. You're not like, your goal isn't always to like monetize everything. It's more to like build a narrative or like explore in different ways or like build your brand. And then like, obviously money comes later, but like there's almost more value in like social clout at that age or like clout within your community. Yeah, it's, um, you have to build very durable fandoms now. I'm looking at conversion rates this is the metric. This is what I'm most interested in recently is that there's audiences that are enormous and then their views to monetization is really tiny. And that, that signals a low level of trust in the content creator. It means that the things this person is saying are not very impactful. They don't affect the way I view the world. You know, it kind of reminds me of like community building, like back when like, you know, the first wave of social you know, there was this thing called like the community managers meetup. This was before you could really like, things would go viral, but it was always one off and it was all about the communities, right? Like the first social media. Is this like Facebook era or? This was like, yeah, it was right after Facebook launched pages. I would say 2010, 2011, like early Twitter, early like Tumblr. But it was like, before you had social media strategists, you had these like community managers that was like, who are fans of us? And like, how do we find these people on the internet? It was a lot about blogs too, like finding these like little fandoms around like certain writers or bloggers. I think social media, like the web two sort of social media is not really built for that. It's all based on scale and reach and stuff. And I do think we're getting back into that like communities era. Like, I mean, I feel like you and I spend a lot of time on discord and like, there's just very like strong discord communities and people are realizing that you don't need scale all the time. Like it's all about sort of like building this group that's very dedicated. Yeah. Well, that's okay. So I think that's part of it is generational. Part Mm -hmm. of it is also just the, the arc of the internet and content production and brand building. You and I are both millennials and to some degree we're early adopters of social media. You more so than I of like your, your early stuff on Tumblr, but we, we were able to build careers later in life because we had the benefit of being there early. But now, like if you're just getting onto social media, you have 100 followers of your friends versus these multi-million accounts. So I feel like people are opting out of that creative entrepreneur, personal brand millennial strategy and are opting into these dark forest uh, private spaces like Discord communities. And I see it in like the Zoomers that are part of our community in that they spend less time on Instagram and spend more time in Discord because it's more meaningful. Or, to them. or even the time they're spending on those 
they're forming communities that I think are not accessible to the masses or like they're very self-referential. They're very like, they're not trying to like scale as much as like it is identifying this group or like your in-group. Yeah, I think I agree with you on that. I mean, I think TikTok has been like the most disruptive thing because, but that's because it's not built on that follower model. Like you're primarily consuming things through an algorithm. I feel like TikTok is now compulsory for the big content creators. Like they have to have a presence on it. I mean, it's the best, it's the only sort of like white space on the internet where it's, because it's not, the distribution is not built on following and followers. Like it's a place that you can go, like you're talking about, that's like not totally saturated. It is way more saturated now than even a year ago, but still it's it it's so good at delivering you like things that are relevant in these niche areas and so there are, it reminds me so much of Tumblr where like if you, there are these like communities and these like aesthetics that form out of there are these like subgroups yeah i was thinking uh, i was thinking about Tumblr specifically and there was an era of i think this is maybe less the case on TikTok now but in in the early years there was like Tumblr had these collisions of hashtags where things would combine that were very unpredictable, but then synthesized like a new aesthetic language that was really exciting. And TikTok had like flashes of that or inklings of that. I don't know. I don't spend too much time there anymore. I feel like you got to get on there, Josh. I, I, well, I was. It, it, it broke my heart. It all. It. Uh, yeah, I, I had such like high hopes for what uh, TikTok could be. I, I what I found was that in the course of the research that I'm really interested in is that. TikTok didn't have the same infrastructure of like group DMs. Yeah. And a lot of kids, like we're talking about opting into Discord or private spaces or stuff like that. If you're under the age of 18 and you maybe don't have a payment system set up and you can't get into a paywalled community, what they do is they make private group DMs on Instagram and then that's their Discord. And it's like 30 people and they just chat all day. And like that's their, that's kind of their news feed rather than the actual like feed yeah. on Instagram? I think like we're all moving that way. I mean, I just wrote a piece like a couple years ago on group chats and related to that. And I just think that like, obviously private communities, like that's why Twitter is building that communities feature, right? That we have now. It's not the same as a group DM, but I think, I mean, one thing I see a lot on TikTok though, is like making a DM group about X. Like if you want to be in it, comment or like making a snap group about whatever. People will say like, join my discord around this, or like, if you're into this stuff, I'll put you in a group chat. I was trying to theorize of like, what is the carrying capacity of like how many people you can actually have in a community? Because I feel like there's an equilibrium where it's like, oh, this is really good at like 50 people. And then once it gets like 150, it's, it's I think all that too is much. too big. I'm, I think 50 people is too much for a group chat. Anytime you have too many lurkers, like... I don't like that. (laughs) I'm like, you got to be a contributor. But I think like just the single chronological like feed of a group chat gets untenable if you have too many people posting. So I think Discord is good because it like breaks it up, you know, like you can have like the topics and stuff like that. I mean, Discord is obviously like the best social network for that type of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, the fallback for all of this is the group text. I have a group text that is, uh, let's say like six people. It's kind of like the writer's room for all of these like art, social media ideas and everyone like uh, checks in with each other and like workshops an idea. I don't know if that is necessarily possible to rebuild on on the larger scale. I do think though that there's a sharing of uh, creative labor that can happen in these smaller communities, especially through like collaborative uh, meme building. And that happens like that is organized through the group DM of Mm -hmm. like smaller communities. I mean, I feel like you have to start stuff 
that way. That's the only way to get, it's the, a good way to get stuff going, right? I mean, influencers do that with pods, right? With, and I think memers do it with memes. And I mean, I definitely have that with other writers where we all promote each other's work and like talk about ideas and stuff for stories. And I think like you're talking about just the value, that chat that you're in, that's sort of like other people that are your peers. Like it's so important to have that. Like, it's just really helpful to have people to like bounce ideas off of or like this is the this is the interesting thing though also and I think it's on a similar trend line where like so say for example all of those people who are in this group chat have their own uh, Substack or Patreon or some other thing mm-hmm. that like they're monetized and we're all kind of atomized islands in this thing based on the monetization uh, scheme right now there's disincentives to really work with each other in that I'm not sure how we could equitably split the profits for any of the stuff that we publish, right? So if someone is on Substack and I'm on Patreon, obviously that's a conflict. But for some reason, there's also not a way if like two people are on Patreon or two people are on Substack, um, people kind of build in these improvised schemes of like, oh, this is someone publishing on my platform and this is like uh, someone publishing on the other platform. But it seems almost intuitive that there should be something built in through the network that facilitates collaboration. And for whatever reason, there's not. Crypto like, people will tell you that blockchain solves this. That's they, well, they do. And it also, <laughs> it does a little bit. Yeah. It actually kind of does. Um, but I wonder, well, maybe that is the trend line. The trend line is actually something is going to tip into Web3 publishing and that will then be like the new the new way of doing it. Yeah. I, I mean, I have friends that have gotten into like newsletter groups or you're, you're talking about like do swaps and stuff. It's always a hard thing to divvy up. If you have your own little thing going independently too, like you don't always want to collaborate in that in a business sense with other people. Yeah. It, it is a shame that there's not easier ways for these. Like, I feel like all these platforms just don't want anything to do with the other platforms. You know, there's no, it's not oh, of course, easy yeah. to work to, across the internet in that way. That makes a lot of sense. So I feel like we spent the last uh, six months on the Twitch stream talking about the importance of institutions and the role that they play in society. And now I have, <laughs> I've left my teaching jobs at universities <laughs> and I'm becoming a content producer full time. So I'm um, like, <laughs> kind of all of the things that I said, like, this is what you should not do. And that like, uh, that's just, that's what, that's where we are now. Yeah. But I'm excited to do it. I think Specifically in the art world, media is probably more resilient to this, but uh, in the art world, there's really no competition. There's no alternative for if you're like a creative producer and um, for whatever reason, the the mainstream institutions are not interested in your work. uh, There's nowhere else to go. Now there's platforms. So um, I think a little bit of competition is healthy for the art world. But what I'm worried about is that I'm worried that we're going to lose expertise and we're going to lose narratives that are not subject to the competitive laws of the attention economy, that we're going to lose curation, we're going to lose editors, and we're going to have like a race to the bottom of like clickbait and like um, sensational porn, basically. I wonder if there's, if there is some kind of potential in these dark forest spaces, in these private spaces where you can escape the attention economy momentarily. I mean, I think on the internet, you have to either like, I mean, it's very similar to media, right? Like, I mean, I, I don't know as much about the art world, but that's what everything you're saying is exactly true for the media world. There's, there's a parody of just institutional structures <laughs> yeah. versus platforms. Yeah. But I think you're either chasing scale or you're chasing like subscriptions in like a small community. Right. And, and I think like 
most of the 2010s was about scale. And now we're like getting towards that like community building and like small sort of like fans or these like really engaged, like you're talking about like groups that are not public. That's, I think, just mentally a better way to operate on the internet. I think if you're chasing scale on the internet, it's just miserable, right? And and thankless. And like you're talking about flat core and capitalism, like that's what they incentivize you to do, right? right. And so you really have to kind of fight against that um, because you are, that's everything on the internet is pushing you towards trying to optimize for that. And you have to be intentional and kind of be like, no, I'm, this is how I'm going to grow my influence, like in this very strategic way. And also like um, monetize in ways that are conducive to that. If you're, if you're monetizing via ads and stuff that are incentivizing scale, like that's not going to help you build a small community. If you're doing like a discord or you have a Patreon and like things like that, I think it's easier to build a business and, or build a, you know, make a living like without having to reach the masses. This, I mean, this, yes, the scale problem is, I think a lot of the conversations of the last few years are basically problems of scale of like, I wonder if we have a healthier political discourse and just like a healthier society in general, if there are spaces that are not subject to the, I don't want to say surveillance, that's not the right term, but like spaces that are private, that are not visible to a mass audience of people who want to like come in and snip things out of context and and stuff like that. Um, This is kind of a roundabout argument for gatekeeping, but what, what the platforms promised was getting rid of the corrupt gatekeepers. But what they meant by that was that they were going to fire all of the editors and they were only going to have the incentives of driving clicks to sell ad views as like, that is going to be your editorial optimization. Those are your goals. It doesn't matter the human narratives that you want to tell. You have to drive X hundred thousand clicks to this article in the most sensational, inflammatory way possible. And that has... um, shredded society and the national discourse uh, <laughs> to a uh, maybe irreparable degree now. So I think this is a healthy process in this next stage of social media. I think it's also, but it's about accessibility and openness too. I will say the one thing that the platforms offer is is accessibility and and sort of being able to very easily like encounter new views or things like, I mean, I'm just thinking of Twitter, for instance. Like, I do think that the communities tab is like a good tab, which is now like sort of essentially private groups within Twitter, but they're not like super private. And I, I think like that's the problem. Like, if there is a problem with Discord, I think discovery is a problem where like it's just you get you're almost too. You don't want to push everyone too into closed communities like Facebook groups, right? Like, it's just very like then you're just in this insular world where you're only surrounded by other people that are nuts, you know. <laughs> and so there is something they're to, cults, yeah, yeah they can like, be cults very quickly, yeah. There, the, and so I that openness and discovery, I think, is really important to like you know functioning society. Yes. Yes. Yeah. There has to be some level of like visibility because otherwise uh, closed groups create dogmas that are totally uninterrogated. And in, in a political context, this means that people marinate in really bad, sometimes very dangerous ideas, and they radicalize further and further in this contained echo chamber, right? So having like a little bit of light leak to um, uh, take the phrase from Carly Busta from the New Models podcast, the dark forest should not be self-contained. Like there has to be some level of visibility from the mainstream platforms. Um, that kind of discourse is really important. And that means 
I was trying to describe this recently as like one of the, I'm, I'm talking about art institutions, but maybe there's an, an analogy here for media. The institutions erect certain dogmas. Um, they're subject to elite capture as they become more and more exclusive. So I think that as the cost of living gets higher, there's a pruning mechanism for people who can enter institutions. So let's say the starting salary at a museum in New York City is like $35,000. Nobody can really afford to do that. So the people who get, then get those entry-level jobs are increasingly subsidized by intergenerational wealth, which then prunes away certain narratives. And before you know it, you have a museum that uh, basically upholds the interests of like a very narrow slice of society. Like, the, like, like media. Yeah, it's the same. I mean, I think it's the same in, in media, um, at least when I was trying to come up in media. Like, it's it's everything you just said is true for a lot of legacy media institutions. Um, obviously, a lot of places um, are trying to diversify and realizing, like, hmm, you know, we should pay people for their internships now, like unpaid internships. Those were normal. Like, when, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They were totally normal. I had to work retail on top of my job and work food service just to do my free internships all day. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> you had to work two jobs, two jobs to pay for your free internship to to go work for free nine to five on, on all my internships. I wow. did nine internships too. That's like the early industrial revolution. Like sixteen hour days are normal. Yeah. That's kind of normal now, too. It's also. normal now. Yeah. <laughs> it's just on the <laughs> internet. Like, we've actually gone backwards. That's the... Yeah. 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 I mean, we've never fixed any problems with labor, really, in our in our lifetime. I mean, we've seen... Oh, I it's think, only been getting... It's, yeah. it's only been sort of, like, further and further dismantled, like, in terms of, like, labor protections and labor rights. I mean, it's great that a lot of legacy media places, like, pay their interns now, but that's not going to solve that's not the solution for everything yeah yeah i mean well the art world is even crazier i, I i'm sure it's probably oh, equally it's crazy totally but bonkers. yeah i did a year in art school and everyone that i i was gonna ask about that because I, <laughs> yeah. I heard you i heard you say it wait this morning actually but i had never heard you say that you went to art school before did? oh my god i was a, i was so into art i won my town like art fair thing for a while i was like wow. yeah, okay I, this I, is news i didn't know about that oh my god i have so much of my what did you do uh, artwork is at my parents house which has been hopefully thrown away um i was i was a painter i was wow. really into that and i um, you know, I, speaking of millennials, like, you know, when I was in high school in the early two thousands, like the art stuff, I remember I, all I wanted to do was go to RISD. That was like my dream. And I was like, I'm going to go to RISD and I'm going to be an artist. And this is going to be my path. And you had to have this, um, you had to be really adept at like fine art in a way that I hate. Like you had to be like a good painter and you had to paint these stupid still lifes and that had to go in your portfolio. And one time I was in Boston and there was some sort of like portfolio review from some like, you know, art person and they were critiquing all of our shit. And I just was like, this sucks. I'm creative. I know I'm creative. Why do I have to like do some blind drawing to like tell wow. you that like, I feel like I'm in the 1800s. And now like, I don't know, like I, that's kind of why I got out of it. I just was like, this system sucks. And then I realized too, that like you get paid nothing. Like I always thought, Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember I, I talked to, I would email, you know, random people. And I, I emailed some gallery for an internship in New York that I think I just found and they were like, yeah, it's, it's unpaid. And, and then I ended up getting coffee with the girl. And I think she said she made $22,000 a year. That, what, that would have been like, would have been, 2005 like 2004, or something? 2004, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. And 
That's like was in- three financial crashes ago. So <laughs> yeah. it's like the money is well, different. Well, I got, ironically got into fashion instead yeah. and did all these fashion internships and was working in fashion. Also very expensive. Which is like also just everyone else there was like just the kids of rich, like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the, that's the thing. Yeah. So I think any creative field, art, media, fashion, like these are all like, they all are upholding a certain like institutional power and, and this like class system it's, and it's not a meritocracy. Right. Right. So that's the, yeah, that's, that's the, that's the terrible thing is that we're, um, we're stuck between these two worlds and there's the old, like say, for lack of a better term, like aristocracy, like an American aristocracy of nepotism and like intergenerational uh, institutional connections, like who your dad knows, yeah. right? That that type of shit. Uh, but then there's this other thing of like this rival force, which is the, the Silicon Valley platforms that are opening up uh, possibilities to break into certain creative fields, but then um, bring with them terrible incentive structures yes. and maybe produce things that are sometimes of a, uh, dare I say, a lower quality and a lower <laughs> significance than like the great works of the, of, of the past. Um, we're, we're all kind of shredded between these two different, different worlds right now. So this is, this is kind of my pitch because there's a bunch of people who are like, let's say like 21 years old who are in the discord yeah. and they are opting out of higher education to like spend time in this community, pay $5 to hear like literally the same syllabus that you would get in a $50,000 a semester school. Um, markets are going to do their thing. Like if the accredited degree is no longer useful, people will opt out of it. But my pitch to them is that there's not going to be really enough creative sector jobs to support all of them. And that the world that we would like to see, uh, we're talking a lot about monetization and influence and content production here, but the world that we would like to see is something more like say the 1970s, where there was relatively more of a social safety net, there were better wages, there were better protections for labor, and that they could navigate their creative practice in a decommodified way. Yes. That they could, If they could sell their paintings, that's great, but they don't have to sell their paintings to survive because they can wait tables three days a week and they can pay rent and they can pay for a studio and art materials. And like they can live this life that in a very wealthy, productive society, we should be able to have and not necessarily need to optimize their creative talents and their creative labor towards uh, selling a commodity that they have to survive off of. Like, if I don't sell four paintings this month, I can't pay my rent. Yeah. That kind of situation. I know. It's making, I mean, this is how I think with media too, right? Like you used to just have like this, this system, this like very like elite sort of system that was very like hard to access and it was sort of like up there in a bubble and then there was sort of like nothing in between um and i obviously the internet has allowed for all of this stuff in between and all of these levels of success or levels of expression or like levels of monetization i I think the internet has different rewards i mean yeah so you're not worried about some gallery but you are worried about the followers or the whatever like there's always some you know you're putting stuff in the world to be judged and any creative thing like you are sort of trying to generate an audience, but it is sad. It is sad that people can't, um, like you're talking about that you have to like monetize yourself like that. I wish that there was other jobs and that there was more worker protections and like things where we, where you could just, yeah, you could just do your work and go home. You can't always oh, that would be nice. do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think so. So you and I are, we're, uh, we're, 
tied to the deck. Like we're we're going down with the ship. Like there's no there's probably not within like our career arcs is is it possible to resolve these things. But maybe if you're like 15 years old right now, you're actually um, we're between the two worlds, but they're going to be in one rather than the other. And so I hope maybe they're in a there's... better world and not a more dystopian world. I hope so. I mean, like so. Okay, so I've been in these um, art tech reading groups in New York for many many years, and I feel like way back in the day. Like the worst case scenarios that we would extrapolate, like, look at this like tech pitch. Look at this rhetoric. Is this just like fucking scorched earth libertarianism? (laughs) Like these people are insane. They're going to reinvent like child labor and shit. And it's like, actually it is that. Like that's what they created. Yeah. Look at what Instagram for kids was supposed to be. I mean, it's, yeah, it is that. I mean, it's insane. I mean, I've written so much about sort of labor protections for children and these teen influencers. And like, I mean, so many kids are just getting exploited on the internet every day by like people looking to make money off them or or sort of using them. They're working all the time. It's like, I, I, that's depressing to me. I, I do think like there's so many teenagers now participating in the adult economy in a way that like you know, when we grew up, like there was that separation, like to talk to a business, like person was like, wow, like, well, I'm in the kid world and there's this adult world. And now all the kids are just on the adult internet and it sucks for them. That sucks. Yeah. I I remember when I first, like the very first thing I published on this stuff, people literally did not believe that the kids I was describing and, and talking to were that young. And it wasn't until TikTok that I could just hold up the phone and say like, look, this is the person <laughs> in their bedroom. This is how young they are. But before I felt like the resistance to that was, but it was this sense of like, oh, it can't possibly be that bad on the platforms. Like this can't be happening to kids that young. And 13 years old and being an anti-SJW is a very appealing identity to a kid who feels marginalized at school and at home. Oh, absolutely. I mean, all of that like radicalized stuff is like catnip for children that age because it speaks to everything that they're going, like that's such a hard time in life and you're determining your own identity. And especially if you're a young boy, I I think like you you can go down that rabbit hole pretty easily. Yeah. I have a lot of teenage cousins, um, and thankfully none of them are have fallen down that, but they definitely have gone through different stages online. <laughs> they're probably aware of it if they're not. Oh, hundred percent. Like, or they're getting the Prager U videos on YouTube constantly. I one of these kids spent his parents didn't allow him to have social media. Uh-huh. He spent two years in the common threads of Prager U videos. Oh, no. That was like and he was owning the libs the whole time. Okay. And like I mean, <laughs> but this kid who's literally thirteen and fourteen, and then he had a sibling who really cared about him, age fifteen and sixteen, he gets out of it. But I don't know, I feel like a stodgy conservative that there should be some very tight regulations to protect the children who are on these platforms because it's clearly having terrible effects in society. Uh, I totally agree. I it it's I think the platforms will never do anything and I think that lawmakers like can barely turn on a computer so we'll never be able to successfully legislate around it and I don't know what's going to fix it. I mean, I will say also like there's I mean there's so much toxic stuff about the internet. A lot of people's I mean, I always talk to the parents of kids that I interview usually and like um uh, some of the parents are nuts too, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I was, I was talking to this one. I won't, I won't use uh, their name, but um, they got, you know, radicalized and some more so on, on the left than the right specifically. But 
I had an interaction, very rare one, where I, I was talking to the mother. And the mother is like a fanatical evangelical Christian. And I was like, okay, this kid, despite all of the radical ideas, might be more in touch with reality than the, the home life. Yeah. And um, that's no longer an internet problem. That's a political problem, a social problem, a media problem. But um, I feel like, you know, I spent a lot of time online growing up. Despite all of the weird and traumatic stuff that I saw, it was definitely better than what's happening now. Oh, 100%. I mean, the internet was just arguably a healthier place. Like in, in some ways, obviously there's just as much toxic shit, but like it was a better landscape. It just, it was. I remember like really shocking, I'm not trying to be gross things. About it. There's like seeing something gross is different than like being indoctrinated. Exactly. Yeah. And, and indoctrination is what's happening and obviously not just to children. Um, I was actually blocked this girl that I interned with um, years ago and she's gone full QAnon and everything. And Oh, wow. Yeah. What's, what's her age? She's oh, well, in her you, 30s. You okay. Yeah, we interned yeah. together. And like, you know, she's, I've seen her go down this rabbit hole for a while and tried to like communicate with her and she's just gone batshit and basically was like, you know, you're a journalist, you deserve rape threats and harassment and all this. I'm like, we fucking had a media internship together like (laughs) 12 years ago. Like what? And I was looking back through our, you know, right before I blocked her, I looked back through our Instagram DMs and it was so weird. It's like, it just was so like, we're talking really nice and normal. And then she, she, something happened with the pandemic because she was posting about Save the Children. Yes. We, I think this past year has radicalized a lot of people. I, I've been saying this, that the pandemic was an incubation period for people who are already on the borderline stuff. Yes. And then content consumption goes way up. Social atomization goes way up. Economic precarity spikes. And those are all the contributing factors. And like, well... People who are on the borderline are now radicalized. And so there was a lot of talk of like, oh, we solved social media. Like fake news is done and extremism online what? is done. <laughs> and it's like, no, it's like we're just getting started. We're like just the last getting year. Started. <laughs> so. uh, okay. Anyone that says that needs to like log on for one day. <laughs> it's terrifying. Can can I ask you about um okay, I'm I'm not gonna uh, tip my hand for this because I have my own my own thoughts Ooh, okay. on it, but I get this question a lot. Um People ask me about Gen Z and QAnon. They say something like, oh, all these crazy Zoomers are like really into the QAnon stuff. Uh, I wouldn't say they're into the QAnon stuff, but I do think that there is a, um, I'm just thinking of like the Wayfair, like TikTok. The cabinets. Yeah. The child trafficking. Yeah. But people, I mean, I talked to teenagers and their parents about that. And I was like, like, this is just not real, but they do believe it. I think it depends on the kids' media literacy. I think overall, like, a lot of people make fun of those type of, like, boomer people online or, like, are doing it ironically or, like, kind of joking or they know it's a conspiracy, but they're feeding into it. At the same time, a lot of, like, 12 and 13-year-olds 100% believe it because they don't – their primary source of information is the internet, and it's very easy to see things on the internet that make you – like – there's no media literacy among young people. Mm-hmm. Most, a lot of people. That's, so that's, yeah, that's interesting. What I mean, do you I, think? I, so I cite, I cite this one poll uh-huh. from um, one of these guys I've been following who's like, you know, now very, very on the right. And before he was like, maybe, uh, you know, the kind of good natured libertarians, the ones yeah. that like uh, smoking pot and like um, gay people and like totally. the friendly libertarians. Yeah. He was one of those. And now he's definitely not. Um, but he had this Instagram story that was a poll 
if you know someone our age, meaning Gen Z, that believes in QAnon. And it was like 80% no, 20% yes. But I feel like there's a conflation of virality and fake news and this um, impulse to attribute that to like the younger generation of like, oh yeah, it's these crazy kids on the internet. No, I mean, I think QAnon is driven by like Fox News type stuff. It's boomer stuff. Uh, Absolutely. And I actually don't think a lot of kids, at least the ones that I've ever talked to would, would sort of like identify with QAnon by name as a cause. But if you're asking them, do you think like elites control whatever? Like, yes, they do. Yes. And also part of that's being a teenager. Well, that, that part is also true. But that's like, what I mean. Elite control. Well, right. But I'm talking more about like the, the sex trafficking or the whatever, right, or the, is the, the media. International, uh, in, satanic pedophiles. Yeah. Or, like, yes. I mean, I do think that a lot of people, if you start asking them those questions, like are a lot more amenable or believe in it because it's like all of these conspiracies, right? They take a kernel of truth, which is that, yes, there is this, you know, billionaire class that operates with impunity in society, but it's like, it's like, yes, that's true, but that doesn't make this other part of it true. But they're using that sort of like true part of it as evidence of the other part. And you're like, but that other part's not true. Yeah. Yeah. But you can see, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it is, I think like the QAnon by name is more like the boomer internet, like the Facebooker. Right, right. But I feel like there's um, there's something here that is uh, an indication of the story or the hopes of the internet going wrong in that, um, you know, as millennials, I feel like people a few years older than us would say like, oh, the kids today are like, they're so internet literate. They're digital natives. They, they know these things intuitively they're going to have this ingrained ability to navigate social media in such a way that they would be immune no. to false narratives. No. And that is, that's not that's happening. That's not true. No. It's actually kind of going <laughs> the other way. 100% believe things. Yeah. I had to talk a teenager explaining that 9-11 was real. Like, I mean, he would not have it. Did but he, like he like inside job or he thought it didn't happen? No, he just thought it didn't happen. Oh, well. <laughs> I was like, it, it happened. <laughs> no, that's... That's great. <laughs> but it's like, okay. I don't know. It just didn't. I, just didn't. I'm like, well, what do you, what, what strain of, I don't know, trutherism is this? But I don't know. I mean, it's like people are very much in their worlds and they do go to these like influencer type figures online for information. Now right. they're much more likely to get their information from that. And they're much more likely to be like sort of distrustful of the mainstream media. This is, well, yeah, this is, this is kind of the thing. And this is not, um, I'm not talking specifically about legacy media here. I'm talking about institutions in general, but like we, we've been in a 40 year period where the faucet of funding for all of America's institutions has been cranked down for 40 years in a row. I feel like people are flowing into the influencer communities because all of those things are failing. So there's this kind of domino effect. And then people go out onto the web in search of answers. And then they find someone who's like, okay, I hear your frustration and your anger. And let me give you a, a solution for it. And I'm inclined to be sympathetic to some of those people because it's so frustrating to actually to, to affect the problem in any other facet because all of the institutions are collapsed and the political infrastructure is not functioning either. I don't, I mean, I feel like, I mean, every year I like become more of an nihilist about everything because it's just like That's so a bad period depressing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wow, things are just going to get worse. I have no faith in literally anything. Um, but I, I can't, I can't imagine. Like, at least we had this period when we were young too. Like, I've been rewatch, I'm watching American Crime Story on the Lewinsky, Monica Lewinsky. Oh wow, it's so good, and everyone should watch it. Uh, but it's just like so funny to 
think about the 90s and like the 90s was just this like idea of like corporate America and like buying into the system. And like, it just, it was so, we grew up in such a different time. Whereas now I can't imagine being young and like having faith in a lot because everything seems to be broken in a lot of ways. And, and also I think for the good part of the internet is it's exposed a lot of that inequality and, and fucked up stuff in the system. Like the nineties was obviously even more fucked up than now in a lot of ways. Um, it's just that there was no, like people didn't have a voice. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But there's also something of, um, I feel like post 2008. So like, this is the experience of our generation, where if you were on board with the Tina thesis, or like the the neoliberal project of like, okay, in the broad historical arc, like other ideologies and political economies have been uh, invalidated. This is the only system that works. Uh, We're just going to continue that out and extrapolate it forever. And we have utopia. But now we're in like, multiple financial collapses later where the system is just very clearly not working. And so I find, I feel like that end of history thesis, the Gen Z, the the thing that radicalizes them, like the real, the energy behind it, the thrust of this thing is that they see themselves as like being on the receiving end of not having had other solutions. So it's like, we're like playful nihilists, but they're like really nihilists. I mean, like, why wouldn't you? I I can understand them being like that. That's how I would be too. In some ways, obviously, hopefully not getting sucked into some bad idea. But it's like the deck is like so stacked against them. But there's also like, or not to interrupt, but like there's also like a. I mean, a lot of them. And it's so broad, obviously, there's so many teenagers, a lot of ones that I write about, like, if I'm writing about somebody, they're usually famous on the internet. And um, it's just very much like, let me get mine. Like, I do feel like Mm -hmm. we're in this period, actually, that reminds me so much of right before the financial crisis, where it's like about consumerism, like luxury goods, like, you know, all the like, labels are back. Like everyone wants to wear like Gucci shit, like mm-hmm. the label in this way that like was very uncool after the financial crisis. Um, and sure. I think like people were reevaluating things and now I feel like it's just like, kind of like YOLO, like whatever, <laughs> I'm just gonna <laughs> like, you know, scam someone on this crypto thing and buy a Gucci hat or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. When things feel uh, hopeless, people are like, well, I'm just going to take care of me. I'm going to build the life raft and like uh, yeah. Yeah, shove off from the, the sinking ship uh, for sure. Yeah. Um, can I ask you about, I mean, I'm going to shift this into another topic if that's okay. Um, I'm curious about this because I have talked to meme accounts and um, various people who report on these these topics, and I've never gotten a concise answer because I think it's totally hidden. Okay. <laughs> it may be folklore. Who knows? Shadow banning is, I believe, a real thing. I have my own case study of what happened. Yeah, yeah, I compared yeah. it with uh, Brad. One is tempted to believe that there was a level of deboosting or uh, deprioritization that happened to both the accounts and that they lost... of their reach for like a period of 60 days, like seems pretty cut and dry. No, I mean, there it's, yeah, it's a thing. But I wonder, have you heard any like concrete? Like, I feel like everything is just ethereal and rumors. People people don't, I didn't even realize I wrote an article in 2017. It was about shadow banning, right when that term sort of first emerged. But I mean, I have a bunch of accounts and um, it's not, I think people think of it as a switch or there's some kind of person that can manually like blacklist you, right? That's how like, I imagine it, yeah. It's not. <laughs> I think it's all algorithmic bullshit. And it's like, did you post something that flagged some filter in some 
code base that is going to now diminish you on this? Or is there some kind of change? I mean, I used to run social media for a bunch of um, big media companies and brands. And there's always that these conspiracies with the Facebook algorithm because, you know, you post the wrong thing or there was this conspiracy where, like, if you posted a – which I think actually could be true because I did see that Facebook now recently – my colleague reported that they're boosting news, positive news about Facebook in the Facebook feed. Did you see that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't imagine. But it's so, wow. I mean, it's such concrete proof of like, there was this thing, a weird thing when you posted about Snapchat for a while, when that time when they were hyper competitive and, um, you know, Evan Spiegel had like rebuffed Zuckerberg's acquisition. There was this time where like, if you as a news company posted about Snapchat, your reach would like dip on that link. And like, I do think that there's things like that, that are probably some executive was like, we need to do more of this in the feed or we need to do this. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's like as cut and dry as like, we're putting this person on a ban for 60 days. I think it's like an algorithm does that. Or you got sure, flagged enough sure. or you're on some list. Like obviously they know that they have white lists for celebrities and like, I mean, that's been reported yes, too. Like yeah, I saw that recently. If yeah. you're a protected account, if you're a journalist account, if you're something like there's this higher bar. And if you're not one of those, like too bad for you because eventually you'll get caught up in something. One of the examples I always give for this is that I was able to show in the new museum theater, the images that got me banned from Instagram. And that's a perfect example of like, the affordances and the privileges that institutions give you. It is it is kind of crazy. I have so many Instagram accounts, but I did have one that I was using to follow only the conspiracy people or whatever. And then it was hard. People were not thinking I was a real account. So I posted a bunch of images of... Um, of like chemtrails stuff, like just pictures of the sky, not posting anything, not saying like any, like, you know, obviously I'm a reporter. I'm not like saying so, but I was just using it to lurk and it, and I got locked out twice. I think it thought I was like a spam account or somebody had reported me for following. I don't know. It was so weird. And I never, I just used it for lurking, but I do think I kicked some filter up somewhere. I don't know, you know, just by like maybe resharing something that I was but it's, I don't know, it's its all such a black box. Um, I mean, I got locked out of my like Finsta account years ago and I've never been able to get it back because I'm not, I have to go through, it's not my main journalist account. So I have to like go through the actual process of trying to retrieve it and it's impossible. It's, yeah. it's like the platform has no support for like average people. And so I understand why these conspiracies come about because it is very easy to get penalized or shadow banned or whatever. I just think yeah. shadow ban is a is, is an umbrella term that can mean so many different things. It means so many different things. That's that, yeah. And most people, most meme accounts that I talk to, they say something like, well, I'm just not getting as many likes as I should. It's like, <laughs> well, maybe, maybe your content doesn't. There's, there's a great example from like, um, I have a friend who's in like the noise music scene in Toronto and um, their their stuff was just not really doing well on, on Facebook. So they all coordinated together to make their show announcements appear as if they were like a wedding announcement. Oh, I did that. Oh, I, yes. For a while, we were doing that on Facebook, putting baby marriage in everything. Ba- oh, baby marriage. Baby marriage. Oh, the, the two. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. But even when we were doing share copy on Facebook for when I was running social accounts, there were all those types of tricks and things like to get reach because you're, I mean, you're just working against this black box algorithm constantly. And that algorithm's constantly changed. It's not even one algorithm. You know, it's just like, 
it's very hard to na navigate the platform. And it gets updated all the time. And yeah. And the priorities change and what they want to distribute changes or suddenly you're getting reels shit pushed yeah, to your feed. Yeah, right. Okay. That was, I, I noticed that a lot. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is, I mean, this is again, like a labor question because um, like, say for example, okay, you would think if you were earning your living through the platforms, there should be like very clearly delineated terms of service because if your visibility suffers, then it's like getting your wages docked. Absolutely. Right? I mean, absolutely. And for people, I mean, it is very literally that for people that are monetizing off views off, yeah, you know, yeah. it's hard. I'm sympathetic to the platforms in the sense that I think policing any of the stuff is really hard and you have to be somewhat vague and it, it has to be somewhat broad enough to give them liberty to like, just shut down like the bad stuff without like tipping their hand too much where you are telling people essentially how to get around it. But then there's, I don't know, like, I mean, with the whole moderation thing, I go back and forth so much. It really depends on the day. Sometimes I'm like, uh, yeah. you know what? Everything should just be community moderated. Like these platforms should have no power. And then sometimes I'm like, why don't they ban all of this spam or like crazy people? <laughs> this is crazy. Um, I mean, I, it, I don't know the answer and I don't even support. I know everybody thinks, well, I think conservatives love to say, oh, the journalists want you to be banned from everything. I, I definitely don't. I mean, I think, especially as a journalist, you spend your entire, everything is about protecting free speech. And mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, I don't think any journalist, at least that I associate with, would argue that. But um, but I don't know the solution. It's very... I feel like, I feel like shadow banning is an attempt to recreate the internet from a few years ago, mm -hmm. where there were like, say there's like a conspiracy community and there's like, hundred people who really care about this, but it's not widely spread or anything. Maybe it's good that that message is only heard by a few people. Um, but shadow banning is this, is this like Rube Goldberg machine to try and like create the small pockets of consensus reality on the mainstream platforms. And it is actually an infrastructural problem where if, for example, the platforms were um, broken up into like a dozen different things, mm -hmm. that would be very easy to manage because you wouldn't have the same problem of like a certain post unexpectedly going viral, circulating throughout the web and uh, uh, whatever. The, just the level of visibility between different facets of reality would not mix. Yeah. Um, but we're not in that era of the internet anymore. We're not in like 2011 where there's like a Facebook group where it's like, oh, this is such a weird thing to look at. Look at conspiracy group on Facebook. Um, but now it's, it's pervasive and it's everywhere. And uh, if, for example, there were a dozen different uh, social networks that were actually viable and competing and not like one monolithic thing, that stuff would actually be, I think, pretty significantly suppressed in its reach. I think um, the the best interim solution is these private spaces in the meantime. Yeah, and like people Discord relying groups. on subscription stuff like Substack, right, where you're yeah. working around the algorithms. That's definitely the way things are going. Yeah, Substack is interesting. It's been interesting how it's been, like, people have tried to politicize it very much. Like, it's a, it's a startup that, like, I think is pretty neutral and has pretty, like, pretty totally reasonable like guidelines around like moderation or whatever. Like they definitely think critically about it, but then you see these um, sort of large right-wing figures just making it like their personality that they're on sure, Substack. Sure. And like, I, I kind of feel for the company in the sense that like it's this startup, but you're the narrative of your company is being seized by these like random people on the platform that are not even the majority of the people on the platform, you know?
So you, you have a Substack, but yes. you you do it uh, relatively infrequently. I know I'm so bad at publishing. Well, on you're it. writing you're writing a book, so you're. Uh, uh, I imagine I'm just busy lazy. Uh, you know what? Also, I have this like anxiety every time I publish on there because it gets emailed to everyone, and even though they subscribe to my Substack, I feel bad. It's like it's the way that like if you post to a feed, it's like whatever, right? But it, there's something I feel like I'm forcing like a push alert or something in a way that I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't, is this that important that I need to like alert people and mm-hmm, I need mm-hmm. to get over that. But, um, cause most people don't even read, you know, they just delete the email, but like, I don't know. It gives me anxiety. I feel like there's a level of like, um, it's not like a follow on social media. Like it's like, oh, I, I do want to see all of these things. Yeah. Right. So you're like opting into it, um, I think you should just send the email. <laughs> I know. Like, I need to get over it. I need to get over it. Um, yeah. I I think for Substack, it's best for people that are writing commentary. Like for me, for reporting, like I very much value working on a team and having editors and having like intense scrutiny on my work before it publishes. And that's the other thing that I, I could not do reporting on Substack. Like I couldn't write an article and put it on Substack and have that be equivalent to the type of reporting that I can produce with the New York Times. Or yeah, it would be hard. Yeah. I feel like that's also part of your like your meta project is making these online spaces visible to legacy media. Um, <laughs> and you actually do believe in like legacy media's responsibility to the public and like being aware of these worlds yes. and its ability to report on the world as it actually exists. And this is just quantitatively where most people are looking. So it should be represented. Um, that is, I think, a meritable project because I'm a big fan of functioning institutions. Uh, the art world doesn't really have them right now, but I'm hopeful that we'll get them back. I mean, yeah, that's like the sole goal of my entire career. Like, I mean, I feel like I started my career a little bit out of spite, just being like, <laughs> I'm going to make these legacy places care about the internet and understand the internet because I hated the way it was covered for so long. And that's what got me into doing it. And it's very hard uh, to do that. But hopefully I make a difference. And hopefully other people that are younger than me that are coming up are going to help make that difference. But yeah, I mean, it's like turning the Titanic, right? Like you're like, it's, and you're just one person and you're like, please, please. (laughs) (laughs) This is, wait, I'm now I'm wondering, I literally used that example in a podcast recently. Yeah. Okay. So this was the the metaphor. I was like, okay. (laughs) So the Titanic is going to hit the iceberg and I'm on the life raft and the life raft is Patreon or Substack or whatever. Uh And I'm shouting at the top of my lungs to turn the wheel so that they avoid the iceberg because I really do believe in like, like, Hey guys, <laughs> maybe we could like toss a rope or something to, yeah, that's, uh, that's so funny. I guess it's like, I think it's like how probably anyone that operates in or sees that world. It's, it's frustrating though. I, it is an uphill battle. And I say that not about the New York times, which is like everywhere I've worked. I've worked at a lot of legacy places at the Atlantic before the times. And I love my colleagues, but there's this management level in media that is so removed from reality. Sure. And it's very hard to get through to them. Like, I mean, even just understanding how we use the internet, like they still view, you know, for instance, Twitter or Instagram as a promotional platform. They don't understand what it's like to like live online, I guess. It's like, oh yeah, Twitter. Okay. Yeah. So you go on there and you share your link when you wrote an article. It's like, no, this is like everything. Like the internet is it's a manifestation of our social lives, of our identity. It's so intertwined with everything and like communication and 
they don't, it, it, there's just not an understanding. And they certainly don't take broadly, I think the media does not recognize this shift towards like individual, like influencers and brands and stuff. It's yeah. still so dismissed. I was thinking about when I covered the, um, the streamers of on the Capitol riot or whatever, the mm-hmm. insurrection. Mm-hmm. And I wrote about, um, all these D live streamers that were monetizing and then the merch that was being sold. Um, they, you know, a bunch of those people like were influencers were selling merch based on that and whatever. And just these monetization schemes, it's like, this is how we've seen streamers and influencers monetize for years and years and years. Then here's how it can be applied in this like political event. It's like, it doesn't, it's, I mean, obviously my editor is a tech editor. She gets it. But like, I think a lot of people don't, don't realize that like, just they think of like, oh, Taylor's beat. It's just talking about like, oh, famous TikTokers, whatever. (laughs) And it's like, I love your work because I feel like your work always shows like the the dark evolution of like what I love a lot, like a lot of the stuff I cover, like what it's going to become. And there, yeah. Well, I feel like there is a, um, I, I, you are a, generally, I would say an optimist, but there is like a, there are recurrent themes of like just deranged narcissism of like some, some <laughs> yeah. corrupt uh, product of social media or uh, greed or um, all of the like unexpected, bizarre things that platforms create in society. And I think generally this is like indicative of the millennial experience that we never, we didn't think of technology as being political in any way. And then we just introduced these tools. Like we basically did city planning. Like we built these, not we, I mean, a group of like insane libertarians in Silicon Valley (laughs) did urban planning in the digital equivalent of it. And then they built all of these intersections where like people would cause conflict and terrible outcomes would happen. And you know, now years later, we're like, huh, I guess like this was ideological the whole time. Like, and like, we should have had a political lens onto this stuff all of the time. Well, I think people, I think, yes. And I think, I mean, I think Trump's election is like what opened a lot of people's eyes to the, just the different ways that the platforms can be. Like, I think, I think a lot of, especially like liberals were like, whoa, this came out of nowhere. Like what? (laughs) How did this this happen? Yeah. Um, I was at the Hilton that night when Trump won with, you know, Trump, all the people and that, that celebration. And it was so funny. I had been at the Javits center previously because I was covering that night and everything and, and left. And it was so interesting how at the Hilton, like so many people were there for content. Like there, there's this, like, it was all those like horrible, horrible, like right wing kind of influencer type people, but there was this like, it felt like a movement and a content thing, like a content strategy. Whereas I, I, I just think it took it. I mean, that's a good example of like how there can be these like ecosystems and movement on the internet that like yeah. a lot of like normie people were blind to for a long time. Obviously the like, people are less blind to it now. Also misinformation and all that whole like beat was not taken seriously. And like, I mean, that was not even a, I remember joining the Atlantic and that was not even a beat that there was like yeah, media companies yeah. didn't really recognize covering the extremism and all that stuff. It happened. It happened really quickly. Yeah. I've had, I've had a number of interactions with, with those people. I feel like. With who the reporters or the influencers? Uh, no, no. I mean, um, people who are doing research into counter messaging and, um, de-radicalization oh, yeah, and, yeah, and this yeah. type of stuff. And like this whole world of like, basically how do you manage like discourse? How do you prevent really dangerous, like destructive ideas from circulating? 
Let me ask you this question though. This is, I, I don't have this fully figured out, but I've written a few things that I think point in the right direction because I'm, I'm thinking of um, you describing all of these like conservative content producers that are there as part of the movement. And so we grew up in a period where there were basically no political organizations. Politics was over. There is no alternative. My feeling is that something is going to happen through social media where some of these groups that are basically online followings that one of them is going to become a real world force. There's an example of this that I wrote about for The Guardian, a streamer by the name of Destiny on yes, Twitch. I know Destiny. Who had his he, very interesting character. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm not giving an endorsement of everything he does, but some, some of the things he does are very important. He had his following canvas during the Georgia Senate runoffs. And there were a few weekends where they were the largest game in town. Just quantitatively, the number of volunteers, the number of doors knocked, they were the biggest one. Um, absent, like, the regular infrastructure of the Democratic Party to mobilize people and knock on doors. That is not um, an enormous example, but I feel like it's an important indication of the things that could grow out of this. And I wonder if you're seeing anything similar to that in the level of, again, maybe making the full arc here back to this question of, like, conversion rates becoming the determining factor of online communities, that there's going to be dedicated influencer or content or online communities that can mobilize their following to achieve real world goals. I think we're seeing that already all over the map. I mean, obviously with QAnon and the school boards, all of the, you know, how they've managed to sort of like infiltrate and encourage a lot of people to to run for, for positions on school boards across the country. And that's so, that's like, very much part of that social campaign is like mobilizing people. I mean, I think the right is just far more like adept at doing that stuff than the left for so many reasons, but they had a big head start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and also it's just easier for them. Yeah, just, yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, but, it, but if you even look at like the anti-Trump stuff or like the stuff that was happening with TikTok or Gen Z for change or whatever, that definitely like, it's definitely like that's the, sort of the future of campaigning and, and mobilizing groups. Like I wrote about Adrian's kickback. Adrian's kickback was this 17-year-old's birthday party that went viral. Do you remember oh, Project X? It's kind of like that or like Ruby's yeah. quinceanera. There, there was all these like wave of like Facebook events, but it's different with TikTok because it was distributing it to the masses. But this thing blew up within a period of a week and there was thousands of people there. And then there was like sort of copycat parties, whatever. But I just thought like, wow – Obviously, this is for this, like, meme because it's, like, the 17-year-old's birthday. But there's something to the fact of, like, the reach that you can get on TikTok so fast and the fact that so many people will show up somewhere based on something, like, in person so fast. I mean, it was kind of like that with the Area 51, like, I was just thinking about thing. that, too. Like, yeah, yeah. But it's gotten so... There's also a Josh versus Josh battle yes. that I got tagged oh, in a lot. Of oh, the, my yeah, God. Yeah. There's so There's been so many things. I think Adrian's kickback was thousands of people and, like, 150 people got arrested, so it was obviously way bigger than those other ones. But, but I think, like, that shows... TikTok's ability to kind of like reach and mobilize people. Obviously, these are for funny like meme events now, but you can very easily see how the right message could get tons of people to show up at the Capitol or whatever, right? Like yeah, that's, yeah, that's also totally. a manifestation of internet movements. I felt like I had a clear vision of this before um, <laughs> before the Capitol riots. Uh, now it's, it's a little bit more uh, uh, dicey and obviously like the state is looking at this in a much more serious way. 
But I will say that I follow a lot of those characters as part of the research. Yeah. And um, they're, so they, they all knew that the band hammer was coming mm -hmm. and their streams, um, the night of the sixth were an onboarding tutorial for telegram, which is where you would yes. find them afterwards. And now they're on another platform and another after that. And yeah, it kind of becomes this game of whack-a-mole that, um, yeah, tributaries uh, just form. Like you, you obstruct the stream, and then it, it just trickles and recollects later yes. down um, down the line. But yeah, Telegram is such a sleeper. Like, yeah, are you, do you spend time on it? Yeah, I'm in there. I'm in a lot of. I have it in my Chromebook because a lot of it is banned from like iOS now. It's like certain channels get uh -huh. banned. I'm not in like political telegrams. I'm in like the Instagram growth hacking ones with like oh, the, the, like random to, meme pages and stuff. Some yeah, you got to get in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like everyone's selling followers to each other. I do one time. Um, I know that there's been times where like I'll be getting a lot of like harassment or people spamming me or telling me to die or something. And sometimes it'll, it'll like well, I think one time I somebody posted something about me and Milo's telegram or Milo had posted it. Oh, I guess. God. But it's just funny because it's like on Twitter, you see that happen. And sometimes I'll just be like, where is all of this coming? Like, why, why today? Like, I haven't even, you know, and yeah, then it's, yeah. yeah, it's, it's often because something about me was posted in a telegram group or something, you know, it's like, it's, it's very funny how you suddenly see that manifest like in your DM requests. Yeah. You can trace it back to like, um. And they, I mean, they've done this also too, like the coordinated harassment uh, techniques. Yeah, that's I mean, kind of what he's known for. for oh, the, I mean, yeah, I yeah. don't even care about yeah. those people. It's just the dumbest. <laughs> he <laughs> doesn't seem like he's doing well either with the, the he's recent antics. He's now, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's sad. What a rebrand. Yeah. But it's just like funny where you'll just be like, what? Like, like where is this? Just kind of out of the blue. But I think that's just Telegram. I mean, Yeah. Yeah, the reach is like way, way smaller on those things also. So it's, I feel like generally the period that we're in, there's like a, it's really taking the wind out of the sails of a lot of those content yeah. producers. Yeah. And so as their communities dwindle, their ability to do that targeted harassment is going to hopefully decline. Yeah, there's such an awareness of it too. Like I actually have was thinking about this, um, my own, just personally, because I've dealt with a lot of harassment from wackos on the internet. And like a year and a half ago, like, Josh, I was having such a hard time dealing with it. Yeah. Like, I was like, these people were like, it was feeling really overwhelming and invasive. And I was like having like a really, really hard time with it. It was like really affecting me mentally. And I think part of that is because like people didn't understand. Like, I would try to explain it to like my bosses. They absolutely did not understand it. Um, and I felt like I was a crazy person where I was like, this is happening. Look at what's happening. Look at what they're doing to my family or my friends. Like, please. Like, and I really think even a year and a half later, like there's so much more understanding of it, at least from even peers. And like some of these people, people just recognize that this is their shtick. Like, I just think there's been, I mean, cause I remember I have friends that dealt with a lot of that stuff in Gamergate and that was similarly, like they felt like these, that people didn't get it. And now I just think people get it to a level and that's actually helpful. Like when I have another, you know, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, I had tons of people coming at me and all this stuff. And I was just like, eh, like, I don't care. Like, it's just, I don't know. Like, there's an acknowledgement, and I think my employer understands better. And so that's that makes me happier in the sense that I think there's more people start to understand how the internet works. And it's not yeah, like you well, must have done something, you know? Yeah, yeah. You get used to it, you learn how to manage it, but it's not something that you can ask of your family. Also. No, it's and like, certain things, I mean, I the, some of the stuff that's happened to me that I've had to get the police involved with, and so it's been very, very bad, but I just, the mean DMs and all that shit, like, just doesn't. 
At a certain point, that's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Maybe you just become numb to it too. But it helps to have an awareness, right? It helps for people. Like, this is my frustration with media companies. It's like, you, this idea, like, you have to, if people are shaping a narrative about you, like, you have to kind of call out what these bad actors are doing. You have to be like, look, this is a harassment campaign. They're harassing journalists because they want to you know, dismantle faith in the media because the media is holding them to kind of, it's like explaining it to people that have no media literacy and just kind of see stuff and believe it. And in that sense, I do think that the Zoomer kids are, are more understanding or like understand that stuff better. Of the mechanics of social media. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, sometimes they mm-hmm. weaponize it themselves, but at least there's an understanding. Well, sometimes they know because they've done it or they know someone who's <laughs> yeah. done it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Right, right. Yeah, the swarm uh, mechanics are, uh, uh, yeah. They're, and the narrative driving, it's all about spinning a narrative about something. And and is your narrative the one winning, right? And Or is this stories that you're telling, are those the ones that are resonating online? That's kind of the, I mean, this is this is very zoomed out, but I feel like the last few years, like I've been doing these interviews, I've had conversations with people where um, we get like very, very in the weeds about their belief systems and like, how they understand the world. And it starts from these like 600 pixel JPEG silly memes. But when you get down to like the core of someone's belief systems of like how they really understand or how they think that the world works, it's all built on these like tiny little stories of something that like their dad said to them on vacation (laughs) once. And it's like, no one is actually, no one's done the reading. Like everyone is just this amalgamation of tiny little building blocks of basically memes, like mimetic phrases, tiny stories. And um, it's been kind of shocking to some degree. It's like, I feel like that is part of my, my faith that has been shaken in institutions and, and everything is just realizing like, how many people I've talked to who are at, ostensibly are at the top of this thing, who are making I don't want to say mistakes, but are um, interpreting the world in a way that seems very formally similar to the young radicalized meme posters that I talk to. And some of them, their jobs are to set these narratives and to tell society's stories. And they're like, yeah, my belief system is built off of this like one experience that, uh, you know, my dad talked to me when we were on the beach that day. And that's like the yeah. thing. And it's like, Or I had one negative interaction on Twitter and now I hate SJWs or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, very, it's very humbling. It's very yeah. humbling. Yeah. Okay. So Taylor, thank you so much for coming by and your book is coming out. Let me read the title of the book. How about that? Uh, Extremely Online, Gen Z, The Rise of Influencers and the Creation of a New American Dream. Yeah. My, it's going to be, it's going to be out when I finish it. <laughs> oh, okay. It's okay. due at the end of the year, the draft. Uh, so it'll probably be like later next year or the year after. Book, book timelines are crazy long. It's I realize. Yeah. 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 And um, in, in the meantime, where can people find yeah, your work? Yeah, follow me. I'm just at Taylor Lorenz on Instagram. I have taylorlorenz.substack.com. I will send my Substack at some point soon. <laughs> uh, yeah, and everywhere on Twitter and at TikTok, anything. I'm just Taylor Lorenz pretty much everywhere. Great, great. So. Cool. Thanks so much. Um, yeah, more again soon. Thanks for having me. This was so fun. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks, <laughs> Taylor.